0: This epiphany and Lent, I've been preaching through Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, sort of verse by verse. And Paul tells us at the beginning of that letter that he writes it from prison. So I've been reading some of these great world books that have been written from prisons. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. and Adolf Hitler and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Nelson Mandela, Fyodor Dostoevsky, Piper Kerman, John McCain, Have you ever read Dead Man Walking? Did you see Quinn Middleman as Helen Prejean in the opera at Northwestern? The greatest Helen Prejean there is. So um, listen to this text, sort of a core New Testament gospel text that Paul brings to us from a Roman prison cell, chapter three. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers, beware of those who mutilate the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and boast in Christ. And even though I too have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, chief Pharisee among the Pharisees as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Jesus Christ. And more than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of mine own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him even in death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Beware of the dogs, writes St. Paul to the Christians at Philippi. You didn't know that common front door sign came from the scriptures, did you? Beware of the dogs. To be honest about it, St. Paul has something of Donald Trump in him. He does not mince words, he does not pull punches, he is not subtle. Beware of the dogs. The dogs, of course, are those who insist on strict adherence to the Jewish Torah in order to get close with God. The dogs, of course, are those people Paul was one of for about half of his life. Watch out for these legalistic hooligans, says St. Paul. Don't let them seduce you back into a dead old theology. So, you can probably hear something of the exaggerated zeal of the convert in Paul's passage here. If someone is really, really committed to an idea, chances are good that she has not always been part of that idea. For instance, I am not a cradle. Presbyterian. I converted to the Presbyterian Church when I was about 25. Didn't have far to go. I was a Dutch Calvinist and just became a Scottish Calvinist, but it was pretty exciting to me. And at the beginning, I was so excited about being a Presbyterian that I was probably a little bit evangelical about that. I had the exaggerated zeal of the convert. In his youth, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi was a Jordanian street thug into prostitutes, alcohol, drugs, and tattoos. Then he converted to Islam and had a friend remove his tattoos with a razor blade. Hard drinking, drug dealing, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi is the person who started the movement that became the Islamic State. That's a conversion from one extreme to its opposite. Have you ever met a Reagan Republican who in a eureka moment decides to be a Sanders Democrat or vice versa? Have you ever met a Texas cowboy who becomes vegan or vice versa? Don't invite these people to your dinner party. The exaggerated zeal of the convert. This is St. Paul. He lurched from one extreme to its opposite, from strict legalism to unfettered freedom. So listen to the catalog Paul piles up about his past Jewish accomplishments. I am a Hebrew among the Hebrews, he says. I am a Pharisee among the Pharisees. I am from the best tribe of the only chosen people on earth. I was circumcised on the right day, in the right way, by the right mole. I kept kosher kosher fastidiously and honored the Sabbath scrupulously and prayed my prayers earnestly. This is the way you get right with God, says St. Paul. And it's hard to tell if he's confessing an errant past or boasting of high achievement. Probably a little of both. But then something horrible happens to Paul. He gets knocked off his horse on that road to Damascus and then he becomes the mother of all Christians. The exaggerated zeal of the count. He tells the Philippians, whatever gains I had in my past life, I count it all as loss and as rubbish for the value of knowing Christ. My righteousness now comes not from the law or from effort, but simply by faith in Jesus. This righteousness, righteousness is not earned, it's given. It is not achievement, but gift. And Paul wants to say we can't get close to God by what we do or work or earn or accomplish. We can't get close to God at all on our own part. God has to come close to us. Martin Luther puts it so aptly We are not loved because we are beautiful, he says. We are not loved because we are beautiful. We are beautiful because we are loved. God loves what's imperfect. God loves what's not self-sufficient. God loves what's unfinished. God loves what's broken and halt and limping. And so a polished elan or a diligent achievement or a polished performance, these are not vehicles but obstacles to a relationship with God. And so today I want to talk to you about the theology of rummage don't fire me just yet for being quaint and small hear me out a couple of weeks ago joe Forrest preached a very fine sermon about the practical communal value Of rummage, she said that in working so hard on behalf of a good cause, we get to know each other better and thereby are enabled to care for one another better. The communal, pragmatic value of rummage. And she's right about that, but I don't care about pragmatic today. I want to talk about the theology of rummage, the symbolic value of it. That is to say, what we do here every May, June, and July in our annual rummage sale is to redeem the broken listen to the verb redeem we restore the used up we repurpose what has lost its value we find something precious in what someone else has thrown away that's a new testament message that's what God does for us in Christ So so here's an example. When he was growing up in Bogota, Colombia, Jose Gutierrez's mother read him stories every night of his childhood. Jose loves books. His favorite book is 100 Years of Solitude by fellow Colombian Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Jose grew up to be a garbage collector in Bogota. And so for 20 years, he's been following the same enviable garbage route through the tonier neighborhoods of Bogota, And Jose loves books so much that it just kills him to see the beautiful volumes his rich customers would throw into the trash. And so 20 years, Jose started rescuing these books from the trash and taking them home with him. So that after 20 years today, Jose has a lending library of 20,000 books. It's a lending library. I thought I had a great personal library, Jose's is five times the size of my personal library. His neighbors call him the Lord of the books, not the Lord of the flies or the Lord of the rings, but the Lord of the books. Jose finds value where others see none. Jose rescues knowledge out of the trash. Jose's work is godly. Can you tell that my favorite part of the show, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, is when Santa lands on the island of misfit toys to rescue a train with square wheels or a bird that doesn't fly but swims and a boat that won't float? That's godly work. That's the essence of the New Testament message. Another chance. The unwanted gathered in, the broken repaired, the used up repurposed. That's the theology of rummage. And so this week in an attempt to live into this prison experience without actually going there, I read a book about a black man who is falsely accused of a horrible crime against a white woman in Monroeville, Alabama. And I wish I could tell you this book was To Kill a Mockingbird, but it's not. Have you seen this book by Brian Stevenson called Just Mercy? It's on a lot of best of 2015 lists. It's a wonderful but troubling book about the unjust and excessive incarceration of young men, especially in the United States. After he graduated from Harvard Law School, Brian Stevenson went to Alabama to provide defense counsel for people who were unjustly accused of crimes, some of them on death row, some of them for crimes they committed when they were juveniles. Almost all of them are African American. And in this book, Brian tells the story of Walter McMillan, who in 1986 is arrested for the robbery and murder of a young white woman who worked at a dry cleaning shop. And people are shocked by this crime. This is Harper Lee's hometown. This is tiny Monroeville, Alabama. White people don't get murdered in Harper Lee's hometown. Months go by. They can't find who did this. And finally, they arrest Walter McMillan despite the fact that there is no physical evidence and no motive and only one testimony, probably an engineered testimony of a career criminal of legendary mendacity, questionable sanity, and invisible integrity. Forty people, including a policeman, 40 people are willing to testify in a court of law that Walter was miles away from the crime when it happened at a church party in public The judge trying the case sends Walter to death row before the trial. This is not only illegal, this is immoral, as if the verdict were inevitable. The judge's name is Robert E. Lee Key. If you are a black man accused of a horrible crime against a white woman in Monroeville, Alabama, do you want to sit in the courtroom of a judge named Robert E. Lee Key? The trial lasts a day and a half. It takes an all-white jury three hours to come back with a guilty verdict. The jury recommends that Walter receive life in prison without parole, but in Alabama, judges are omnipotent. Judge Robert E. Lee Key sentences Walter to death. And so they throw him back in death row, where he sits yards from the machine they call Yellow Mama, Alabama's electric chair. And it takes Brian Stevenson six years and hundreds and hundreds of hours of legal work and every trick they taught him at Harvard Law to reverse Walter's conviction. And after six years of sitting on death row next to yellow mama, Walter McMillan walks out free at last. It is a story of gospel grace. This is Harper Lee's hometown. It was as if Atticus Finch came back in the flesh and this time won his case. Well, so what, right? What's the point? We're not Walter McMillan, and we don't need somebody like Brian Stevenson, thank God. What's the point? Maybe it's this. Maybe this is God's word for you in this way. Maybe somebody here feels unwanted. Maybe somebody here feels broken or finished or used up or thrown away. A while back, a writer named Tim Kreder wrote a story for the Modern Love column in the Sunday Times. And in that story, Tim Kreder describes himself and many of his friends as relationally challenged. They just can't form a lasting relationship with another human being. These are people in their 30s and in their 40s who want to have a life's partner to love and to talk about books with and to go to movies with and to take home to mom and to buy presents for and to fall asleep with. They just can't find anybody. And they're beginning to ask themselves, will I always be alone? And one of Tim's friends says to him, I keep giving myself to people, but they don't seem to want me. And Tim finds another friend crying at her dining room table because she hasn't had a real relationship in years. I must be doing something wrong, she says, weeping. Tim's friend Jasmine has been engaged to two different men and married to a third, but she says to Tim, I think I will always be single. I was single even when I was married. Somebody here feels single even though they're married. And the whole thing made me think of those lines from W.H. Auden's poem, The Age of Anxiety, It is getting late. Shall we ever be asked for? Are we simply not wanted at all? The New Testament has an answer for Auden's penetrating question. You are wanted. You are loved and loved and loved. And so maybe this summer you'll be sorting through a pile of old shoes or some mismatched golf clubs or some tacky Christmas tree ornaments or you'll be working in the toy department and you'll watch a little girl snatch a stuffed animal off the shelf and she'll walk out with unchecked glee clutching a teddy bear some other kid threw away. And you'll think of the theology of rummage that God finds value in what nobody else wants. You are not perfect. You are not finished. You are probably not a masterpiece. And some people might want to throw you away. Nevertheless, you are loved and loved and loved because. God finds value in what nobody else wants. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.